Will you who shut is up, on, man? Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so list? Right. Gentlemen, is, I think this we've is ended so unprecedented. X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, September 30th. Month just about up. And today, back in the day, September 30th, 1946, 22 Nazi leaders were found guilty of war crimes and sentenced to death in the Nuremberg trials. When you think about them like I do, they're Nazis. The trial was held by a military tribunal with judges from all of the Allied powers, United States, the Soviet Union, Britain, and France. The Nazi leaders were charged with war crimes, crimes against peace, crimes against humanity, and a criminal conspiracy. Defendants included Hermann Goering and Joachim von Rippentrop. Goering was responsible for the Luftwaffe Air Force and Hitler's stormtroopers, known as the SA. He was instrumental in enforcing the Nazi police state. And Rippentrop was the foreign minister during the Nazi regime. He negotiated and signed the Pact of Steel with Italy, linking Europe's most aggressive fascist dictatorships. The defendants generally admitted the claims they were accused of happened, but they claimed they were not responsible because they were just following orders. Political theorist Hannah Arendt developed her theory of the banality of evil watching those trials. She remarked that evil acts can be committed by complacent and unempathetic people doing mundane things. The Nuremberg trials were landmarks in international law and set a precedent for trying war crimes in international court. The legacy of those trials can be seen in the International Criminal Court at The Hague. And today, back in the day, September 30th, 1962, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta founded the United Farm Workers. The union was essential in improving wages and working conditions for migrant farm workers. The union organized countless marches, strikes, and boycotts to draw attention to the racism and xenophobia that plagued the industry. And the United Farm Workers was also instrumental in passing the Agricultural Labor Relations Act, a landmark agreement that recognized the right of farm workers in California to organize. It is the nation's first and remains the nation's largest farm workers union. Today we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we'll have an interview with Edward Colson with the No Natural Disasters campaign. X-ray. First, it is time for today's quick six local rundown. A 2022 ballot initiative has been filed a couple years in advance to institute restrictions on the freedom of assembly. It's titled the Protect Free Speech and Safe Streets Act. It was submitted on Monday to the Oregon Secretary of State. Who are the chief petitioners? Well, they include Portland Police Union President Daryl Turner, that union's attorney, and retired police officer and state representative Jeff Barker. The initiative would establish more expansive criteria for a city to institute time, place, and manner restrictions on the freedom of assembly. Included in the initiative is a 10 p.m. noise ordinance for First Amendment-protected gatherings within a quarter mile of residences. If you weren't within a quarter mile of residences, it could be midnight. Where in Portland are you not within a quarter mile of residences? That's a good question. Listen to a previous episode of The Local covering the geography of Forest Park. The initiative would also hold city governments liable for litigation and damages. Turner and his crew also submitted what they called an Ethics and Politics Act on Monday, seeking to make the Ethics Commission of Oregon more independent and to develop and enforce high standards of conduct and increase accountability for lawmakers who violate existing laws. Presumably, that's targeted the city council, the mayor, and probably District Attorney Mike Schmidt. Is that Protect Free Speech and Safe Streets Act constitutional? The proponents will argue it is simply a restriction on time, place, and manner. Opponents will say it is license, even a demand, to limit and fine speech. What's the answer? Well, to paraphrase Oliver Wendell Holmes, what a judge will do is all I mean by law. 
or being more faithful to the quote, the prophecies of what the courts will do in fact, and nothing more pretentious, are what I mean by the law. If the Constitution is to be a living document to be interpreted differently by Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Amy Coney Bryant, then the question I put to you, dear listener, is should it be deemed constitutional? 24 protesters were arrested last night after the Portland police swept through a march before it began. In a new tactic for quelling demonstrations, several dozen officers entered a gathering of protesters in North Portland. The crowd there was preparing to march on a police union office. The officers confiscated homemade shields and other items. Video showed officers taking a picket sign that said vote, and that led to a scuffle between protesters and the police. Some protesters were then arrested on charges of interfering with a peace officer. Police also used pepper spray. According to the Oregonian, some officers were heard saying they were looking for a particular person. They shone flashlights into people's faces as they searched. We don't know who they were looking for or if they found them. Police Bureau's statement was this, and I am quoting, to lower the likelihood that members of the gathering would use the shields to protect those intent on committing crimes. Before leaving, the officers informed the crowd that they did not have a permit for their intended march. That said, about 150 protesters later began their march to the police union office as planned. Police surrounded the building, declared the gathering an unlawful assembly. By the end of the night, 24 protesters were arrested, mostly on charges of disorderly conduct and interfering with peace officers. Police Bureau said one sergeant was sent to the hospital after being punched in the face. They also said five officers were sprayed with an unknown chemical. Your daily dose of coronavirus data, 299 new cases of COVID-19 on Tuesday, well above that benchmark of 200 and almost at 300, and also eight new deaths yesterday, zero. I apologize if I got your hopes up. That brings Oregon's case total past 33,000 to 33,291 confirmed and 555 Oregonians confirmed dead. Those eight new deaths marked the highest loss of life in two weeks. Multnomah and Marion counties reported the most cases, 52 and 49, respectively. Washington County in third with 41, Clackamas County with 28. Federal data shows that Oregonians have waited much longer than most for their unemployment benefits. Many Oregonians waiting for their unemployment benefits have endured huge delays. In many cases, Oregonians have waited 10 weeks or longer for their money. Now, new data from the U.S. Department of Labor shows how that compares with other states. Overall, 18% of Americans who received benefits in July had already waited more than 10 weeks. But in Oregon, that number was 43%, and the figure rose to 60% in August. In Washington State, 34% of August recipients had waited more than 10 weeks. In California, only 11% could say that. George Wentworth, a lawyer with the National Employment Law Project, called the new data, and I am quoting, pretty horrific. Representatives of the Oregon Employment Department argue the data shows they've been clearing the backlog. David Gerstenfeld, the OED director, we've talked about him, told lawmakers that 49,000 claims are currently in an extended review process, and they're stepping up hiring and training to clear those claims. I suspect this is not the last time we will be telling a story about the Oregon Employment Department. And as the Oregonian headline put it, the Portland Police Oversight Ballot Measure has detractors, but no formal opposition. Ballot Measure 26-217 is one of the many proposals headed to voters in November. It's actually headed to you in a couple of weeks. You're about to get your voters' pamphlet statements, and after that, your ballots. It would establish the new Police Oversight Board run by civilians would replace the current hybrid model of police oversight. Among the people supporting that new initiative includes the outgoing chair of the current system, and it would give the Civilian Review Board actual teeth, the ability to compel testimony, and the ability to impose punishments. It got voted on unanimously by the City Council. It's endorsed both by the mayor and mayoral candidate Sarah Anarone. The Portland Police Union has been vocally opposed, but no formal opposition got filed. Opponents of the Oversight Board had until September 8th to file an opposing statement in that voter pamphlet, but they missed the deadline. So now the voter guide will not contain any detracting opinion for the measure. 
Meanwhile, support for the ballot measure has been quickly growing. They've been raising money, and a recent poll said 70% of likely voters support that measure. And as a matter of disclosure, I will say, fair listener, although I will attempt to tell it to you straight, I have been engaged in supporting this thing. Another big thing on the ballot is the metro transportation measure. As we explained recently, the opposition campaign has raised $800,000 in counting from large businesses who oppose it. It would impose a payroll tax on employers of 26 or more workers. The tax is capped at 0.75% would go into effect two years from now, or 2022. The campaign supporting it, they've raised $579,000. And the most recent polling information on that one, 42.2% in favor, 37.8% opposed. That leaves a pretty big margin of undecided voters, 20%. This one looks to be close. A ripple of hope, Oregon is going to start providing more lunch money to families in need. Many families rely on the free and reduced lunches provided by the state. And when the pandemic caused schools to close, those families didn't get the lunches. So last May, Oregon responded with a pandemic school meal replacement benefit. That gave $384 per child to families that normally qualify for free and reduced price lunch. Those benefits were provided to the families for at least 350,000 students. And now, after spikes in new coronavirus cases have delayed some school reopenings, a new round of lunch money is going out. This time, eligible families will get credits of up to 100 bucks or more per student. Those funds will go directly into their EBT accounts. It's a one-time payment intended to cover lunch costs for August and September. Over 300,000 students are expected to qualify, and the cost may total a little over $35 million. That's going to come from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Some districts have been packaging lunches for their families, and according to the Oregon Department of Education, those efforts can continue regardless of new benefits. State officials, meanwhile, are saying that although this is a one-time payment, they are hoping that more payments should be on the way as budget talks continue in Salem. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. And to all of us who listen to the local, I wish throughout our lives that we have detractors, but no formal opposition. X-Ray. Up next, we have an interview with Edward Colson. Edward is the spokesperson for the hashtag No Natural Disasters campaign and the president of Ready Northwest. He talks about the work Ready Northwest has been doing in regards to the fires. Colson also addresses what the hashtag No Natural Disasters campaign really stands for, the work they've been doing, and why it's important. Here's Edward Colson speaking with X-Ray's Jefferson Smith. Edward, good morning. Good morning there. How are you? Well, I'm living. And, I, yeah. and I'm going to answer that question honestly. Every time I cry in my beer, every time I despair, I try to think about the things I'm grateful for and the people who have it way worse than I do. And boy, there are a bunch of them. For the last couple of weeks, things have been tough on our state and elsewhere. And we're not out of the woods yet. You work in the field of disaster preparedness. What has life been like for you? <laughs> Well, um, it's kind of the same. It's uh, just, it seems one thing after the another. Um, and it's just been constantly, uh, this year, definitely um, response over and over from uh, the winter storms at the beginning of the year to COVID-19 to the wildfires in our state. So um, it just, it's a growth industry, I guess, disaster preparedness is. So talk about the work you've been doing recently with respect to the fires. Yeah, so um, I have been um, assisting um, uh, counties and healthcare agencies and uh, assisting them in uh, both uh, notification and healthcare processes. Um, been able to help them um, plan for evacuation shelters and supporting um, the evacuees with what they need at their shelters um, as, as, at the same time as uh, helping out uh, the emergency management agencies that are taking the lead on that. 
How's that been going? What have been the biggest barriers for you? Um, I think one of the biggest barriers is the it's, it's the speed of how fast these wildfires moved and how quickly they came into uh, from the rural uh, to the metro areas and the uh, just the general uh, dynamic of having to notify and uh, help assist the evacuation of uh, hundreds of or tens of thousands of people from the affected areas uh, while we are still dealing with uh, the pandemic and the weather conditions that contributed to it. Anything been giving you hope? Any any breakthroughs? Any positive things to shine to shine a light on? You know, one of the biggest things that I have noticed um, is the amount of support uh, that the community um, is willing to offer those affected by the fires. Um, the amount of uh, unselfishness uh, that people have uh, seeing their neighbors uh, and people in need, and, and just offering the assistance, any assistance that they possibly can. Um, getting a report from all of the uh, shelters in the evacuation area, um, the amount of donations and volunteer support that was being offered was uh, outstanding. Um, they had to uh, say that we, we have got so much and we thank you for your enthusiasm, uh, but we are good right now. And so um, that was so uh, heartwarming to see and uh, really uh, got to give it out to everybody who uh, reached out to support them. How worried are you that fires are going to start growing again? Is that looking likely, or now are we being Portland, Oregon again, where it's raining? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, what we used to think was a wildfire season of a few months has uh, rapidly changing into a, a concern for um, a year-round aspect of wildfire. So for, personally, here for Oregon, um, we're not out of the woods yet, even though that we uh, have had a good rainstorm. Um, things uh, can happen because uh, drought has been an issue for the past uh, few years. So wildfires can still uh, develop uh, within the right conditions. If they get uh, enough uh, wind, uh, hot enough, even though we're going into uh, the fall season, we can still have uh, that issue. Uh, If we look back a couple of years ago, California had wildfires raging in December. Um, And so that is absolutely a possibility uh, going forward. You work on a campaign called No Natural Disasters. It has a hashtag at the beginning. Tell us what that means. Yeah, so what um, the ha- No Natural dis- hashtag No Natural Disasters um, is really trying to bring light to the fact that the terminology natural disasters um, is kind of misleading. Uh, what we talk about in emergency management is that uh, all of these hazards, uh, wildfires, flooding, hurricanes, winter storms, etc., earthquakes. Um, these hazards have always existed. Um, it's just the interaction of the human component now. So once we, enter, once we enter the human component and communities that are placed in areas where these hazards exist, that we get a disaster. So in and of itself, a hurricane is not a natural disaster. It's its interaction and its effects that it has on the community where it's uh, striking uh, that constitutes uh, the disaster that exists around there. So we're trying to change that terminology instead of just blaming an end all it to it, it happened because of a natural disaster. We're trying to bring light to uh, the circumstances and the community um, that was affected and what we can do to mitigate that in the future. So give us some more examples of the language, where we get the language wrong, how we describe it wrong, and some examples of how to describe it better. Yeah, so, um, you know, the definition makes clear that, you know, the hazard can only become a disaster once it impacts on a society or community. Um, and at the point of which that hazardous event interacts with it, um, 
affects different people at different ways. Um, different segments of society are affected differently because of where they may live in a more coastal or uh, more vulnerable area of the uh, land that was struck. So when we think about natural disasters, it always seems to defer our thinking to, well, these are acts of God or there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. So what we're trying to do is change that terminology from natural disaster to just simply a disaster. Um, and that way we can kind of, we can take concrete steps to prevent um, and mitigate, although we can't eliminate it completely, we can take steps to prevent and mitigate the impact it has on society and the uh, human interaction uh, around that area that was affected. And say more why it matters what we call it, but just because then what it, we have, we recognize our own agency and our own impact on these disasters? Yeah, once we say the word natural disaster, it almost takes away uh, the ability for us to do anything about it. Oh, well, it was, you know, the storm came in and it was a natural disaster. We just have to accept it. And if we take away that terminology uh, and just refer to it as a disaster, then we can start to empower ourselves and our communities that are around uh, areas that can be affected by these types of hazards. Um, and then we can start to make uh, greater impacts in preventing and mitigating what can happen if we start to uh, change the way land zoning laws are, or we start to look at uh, certain communities that are more vulnerably affected, whether it is because of uh, their inability to evacuate an area or prepare adequately uh, or to reach them when a disaster strikes. Um, we just want to make sure that you don't have to accept a, a hazard that comes to you um, as part of living where you are, that you can actually do things that can sustain and prevent that impact from a disaster if it's going to occur. I saw that hashtag, and I thought you were in the business of trying to stop natural disasters. No more natural disasters. And I, I didn't realize that you were trying to get me to not think about an elephant by saying don't have an elephant anymore. What is So you're not offering a different adjective necessarily. You're just saying dump the adjective. Just say disasters. Yeah, absolutely. Just say it's a disaster. Um, yeah, and being able to reach more and more people with that concept allows them, once again, to be able to empower themselves to say, okay, well, I'm not going to be uh, a victim of whatever hazard exists in my particular area. I'm going to do something about it so that I can prepare myself, my family, my community um, in whenever this strikes and happens. So I'm just not going to be uh, out out in the open, I guess you could say. How big a role does climate change play in your campaign? You know, um, it, it plays a big part um, because where we start to see the climate affecting uh, these hazards with more um, ferocious, larger, and, and more hazardous uh, storms, and as we saw with the wildfires, uh, the people that are affected, especially when it comes to uh, rain events or hurricanes, uh, the people that are affected are usually living in areas um, because uh, it's more expensive to live in other places or um, that's where the most fertile land is um, and nothing has been done to be able to help uh, mitigate the effects of uh, storm surge or additional uh, heavy rain that comes in. So when we try to refer to uh, the way that climate change affects disasters, we're going to start to see them, uh, the frequency of them more. We're going to start to see their impact on greater areas of the population that may not have experienced it more and that's why we want to be able to push out that message that you can prepare yourself for these um, hazards that exist 
Edward Colson, No Natural Disasters. Thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks to Edward for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.